All right, let's get to it here on the People's Show, broadcasting from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. I'm Bick. You can always be part of the show as well, 650-650, into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Dunbar Lumber, three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Busy, busy show today. We'll talk to our Mr. Fix-It in the back end of the show. Ken Priestley, John Gay will join us today, and uh, we'll connect in just a couple of minutes with Brad May as well, long-time NHL former Vancouver Canuck, uh, plenty to get into. I haven't heard from Brad in a while, so we'll touch on the OAL buyout and also the Hall of Fame class as well. Brad uh, adjacent to a lot of these guys. Uh, Tom Barrasso uh, just being in Buffalo prior to Brad uh, being there was the legacy, the Hall of Fame legacy of Tom Barrasso felt in Buffalo uh, when Brad May arrived, and uh, also Pierre Turgeon as well. I think there was a little bit of crossover, maybe just before uh, Brad got there. Let's actually connect with Brad May right now, uh, who joins us. Longtime NHL or former Vancouver Canuck here on The People Show every Thursday. Brad, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, I was I was really interested to talk to you this week because uh, it, it feels like you were uh, Hall of Fame adjacent to a lot of these players uh, that went in. Uh, thoughts on uh, the Hall of Fame class? Because I guess Barrasso would have been gone just uh, before you got to Buffalo, right? No, no. Um, and thank you for bringing up Tom Barrasso's name. And congratulations to Tommy being inducted into the Hall of Fame, but my first NHL game, my first NHL breakaway, my first NHL shot, um, I scored on a breakaway against Tom Barrasso in the Pittsburgh Penguins. Right, but I, I you're right, right. I, I, I meant his teammates, because like, he would have been in Buffalo before you, right? Oh, oh, forgive me. Oh, sorry, I, I always like telling people <laughs> that I scored against Tommy. Well, <laughs> well hang on, take us through the goal. Right? Take us through the whole goal then. <laughs> um, yeah, Tommy, Tom was in Buffalo. Of course, he had left. Um, when I started in Buffalo, it was with Clint Malarchuk and Darren Pupa. Mm-hmm. Um, but Brasso, his numbers, obviously he won the Calder Trophy, a um, couple Stanley Cups there with um, with Pittsburgh. What a, what a, what a goaltender! Interestingly, um, playing against Tom Brasso, he had the you know opposite catching hand, um, so he had a different look um, to a lot of shooters, and I think that might have been an advantage for him. Uh, just uh, thoughts in, in general on the Hall of Fame class too, because I guess uh, Turgeon would have been uh, just before you in Buffalo as well. Uh, well, uh, now this one, I, I actually played the first few weeks. I played with Pierre, um, and then he got traded for Pat Lafontaine about, I don't know if it would be 10 or 15 games into the season. Mm-hmm. He he ended up going to the New York Islanders with Uwe Krupp, Benoit Hogue, and Dave McElwain. Um, and we got Patty Lafontaine and, and um, Randy Hillier back to Buffalo. But um, Pierre, I ended up playing a, a couple years with Pierre after the lockout when I left Vancouver and signed with Colorado. Um, that same day, Pierre signed um, with Colorado as well. So we both went and we played two years together in Colorado. What a wonderful human being he is. He's one of the greatest people ever. And um, I couldn't be more happy and proud of, of, of his accomplishment. Um, just a sweetheart of a guy, but the way he played, he played with integrity. He was he was an honest player, but you know what? He was he was a fierce competitor. 
We were talking on Monday, kind of getting ready for the the Hall of Fame announcement, or Tuesday, and I mentioned his name. And it's not it's it's someone that we you know talk about a lot this time of the year because you know it, it's not as if there was a lot of Hart trophies or Stanley Cups or even like All Pro teams, and yet the, here there is thirteen hundred points. And I just remember just uh, like constantly there always being a mystique about Pierre Turgeon, and I was kind of making the case for him that look, it's still a lot of points. There's not a lot of guys that have put up one hundred and thirty point seasons before. I understand he doesn't get lauded into this like. Oh, surefire Hall of Fame guy, and it's been a process to even get here. But it did always feel to me like there was a mystique about Pierre Turgeon, uh, either the way he played or just how he played. You know what? He was um, he he was a beautiful hockey player. He really was. Um, I agree with you though, and and I I'm so proud of him. But um, there's other names that I'd like to think that that could be, could be picked as well. And Alexander McGillney to me is still. It, it, baffles me that that he's not in the hall of fame alexander mcgillney his skill set he actually changed the landscape of of russian players coming to the national hockey league he had the courage to actually defect from his country a communist country and you know i know politically the world changed but um he was the first and he had that you know and then then fedosov and kasatonov and then the whole other wave comes to the national hockey league alexander mcgillney should be in the hall of fame for just that not the NHL Hall of Fame; it's the International. It's just the Hockey Hall of Fame. And, um, anyways, that that's my two two cents for Alex. And I think Jeremy Roenick uh, is is a player. He's got all the numbers. Um, not a Stanley Cup, but he's got all the numbers. Um, that American-born player playing in you know with I think thirteen hundred and fifty points or thereabouts. Um, he he was a good player too. So it, it, it's a hard one though because obviously the selection committee they've got. Only limited spaces to have four players going to the Hall of Fame, um, and who, who's that going to be? There's always going to be a discrepancy. We were talking yesterday, just uh, again about the Mogilny omission uh, again on the Hall of Fame class, um, and it, it was kind of just sad that you know here in Vancouver, as far as talent and, and skill and technique like maybe McGillney had more than Burray and you know here, here's a powerful player an explosive player but as far as skill of doing everything on the ice was in in your mind McGillney better than Burray at at the overall complete game 100 percent. and I know Vancouver they would they like they had both players so I'm not going against anybody pa- Pavel deserves to be there he's people paid money to watch Pavel Burry play mm-hmm. um, his speed and just how electric and exciting he was and of course you know, Olympic gold medal, and this guy was a um, terrific player. Obviously, we know that. But Alexander McGillney, I played with him in Buffalo for a few seasons before he was traded to Vancouver. And then, of course, I re- rejoined him and played with him in Vancouver. Um, this guy was just an incredible talent. He scored 76 goals, which I was actually his left winger for half the season that year. Um, I, I, the player is amazing. He played with Alex, or Patty LaFontaine, and the two of them were were so electric. He won a Stanley Cup, which which Pavel didn't. Alex won the Stanley Cup as probably the best defensive player on a defensive team in in, in New Jersey. What he did, he could actually play all facets of the game and be relied upon. Um, maybe his givish, you know, I was going to say, give a whatever meter um, wasn't always on. Um, I think he was a little bit aloof, and maybe that hurt the media and, and the selection committee. Um, but this guy was amazing. And, it, and I just think, you know what, it's hard. Not everybody can go in there, but I think he's deserving. I really do. 
because that would have been your what second season when he put up uh, seventy six. So was that kind of yeah. eye opening just to see how explosive he was as a as a goal scorer? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick one because you guys, of course, everybody listening, and if you watch the Canucks, I mean, you saw Alex score fifty a number of times, and but in Buffalo, he got he was making one hundred eighty five thousand dollars in nineteen ninety two, and if I I stand to be corrected, but I think that's the number. When he scored his fortieth goal, he had a bonus five thousand dollars a goal after forty. And when he got to 45, every goal after 45, he got $10,000 a goal. And that was on his thing. He scored 76, so do the math. But he scored 13 goals in a week and a half. The moment he hit 40, this guy was absolutely inspired. I've never seen anything like it. 13 goals in a week and a half. And he bought himself a brand-new Mercedes-Benz, whatever, that cost thirty grand, And he went after it. He did it. If this guy was paid ten grand a goal from the start of the season, he might have been the first guy to ever score well over 100 goals in an NHL season. I've never seen anybody play and have the ability in a matter of three seconds. His stride, he didn't want to rag the puck and skate it from one end to the, to the next. He was kind of like a real darty type player. But when he saw an opening, there, there's very few guys that did it better than Alexander McGillney. Uh, I just brought up the game log here, too, of that season. There's a, a like a six-game span where he scored four goals and then did it again just six games later with another four-goal effort. Yeah, like it, just, it was so fun. And just watching him do this, it was it was really cool. And that was a – it was actually the year Mario Lemieux was he – got, he got injured – not injured, but he was maybe battling Hodgkin's disease, um, and he missed some time. And Mario ended up leading the league in, with 170 points or something. But Patty Lafontaine and Alex were in the top five or top six scoring in in, in the league, the two of them. And um, I don't know. I obviously we love our friends, we love our teammates, and I want to see the good things happen to them. I think Alexander McGillney's well deserving. But the guys that were picked, the goaltending, Mike Vernon, what an amazing teammate I've heard. I know Mike, but he's a great guy, and Stanley Cup winner a couple times, and um, of course Tom Brasso. So. You can't. You, they they can't pick everybody, and that's that's the hard part. Uh, here locally, uh, some news over the past uh, handful of days: uh, Oliver Ekman Larson now bought out, and a big signal too to say, "Hey, we, we're committing to try to build this in a way, and and we don't have to carry people along with us." And there's a big contract uh, discussion about it, and it's 19 million dollars get to get paid out, and the, the, they get a lot of cap space. But your initial reaction at seeing uh, Oliver Ekman Larson bought out? Disappointed, uh, disappointed that it didn't work out because he was a very, you know, very important player for the Phoenix Coyotes. I know Phoenix hadn't had a ton of success when he was there, but very important player. Um, gets an opportunity to go to a great market like Vancouver. I think, I, I and, and Swedish players have done very well in Vancouver. I thought it was going to be perfect. I thought he was going to be a great addition, um, and it just didn't work out. And you know, everybody has a a timeline on their career. Um, hopefully he can get himself back to a level where maybe sign somewhere else. If that's what he chooses, he's certainly good enough, but um, he certainly didn't, he didn't earn his, his salary in Vancouver. Um, he was supposed to be a leader on that team, you know, offensively, defensively. And um, he wasn't that he was actually a liability. And I, I like the move of buying him out. You get cap relief. Um, but I think it's just disappointing for everybody. And most importantly, Oliver, because he's a great guy and he doesn't, you know, I shouldn't say he doesn't deserve it, but I'm sure he has, you know, some feelings about this that um, 
he's disappointed. So I, I, I don't like to bag bag on guys when they're down. Um, I, I, I prefer to be a supporting or a supporter or supporting cast. And but you know what, Vancouver's got to change the, the, the complexion of the team, and I think that was a good start. The the thing for me, and and, and you kind of mentioned it there of of trying to make this change as an organization. I just felt like it was always going to be difficult to try to solve the the equation of okay, how do we make it work with Ekman Larson here on the roster, and you keep having to add him into the discussion of okay now we make this addition how does it work and now you you can just kind of release that and you know as they try to change regimes from what didn't work before into what this group is trying to do now for me it's always about cutting out the rot and then starting anew and and you don't have to make any qualifying decisions say oh we, we we're doing this but it doesn't work because we have this player here right i i, I think listen um there's there's big decisions to be made, a, a lot of money to be, I say wasted, but you know mis mis spent possibly, but you know what? When you buy a player out, it is there's there's a lot of reasons for it, and um, I I just think a clean slate, um, or certainly more money for Vancouver to to add to what they have, they're not going to win the Stanley Cup in the next year. Uh, I I sorry to say that, but they're they're actually hopefully going to be on the upswing. Um, Obviously, with this, you know, I say new coaching staff, but with with Rick at at the helm um, and whatever identity that that turns out to be, I think Vancouver fans deserve the best. I think the Vancouver fans deserve a Stanley Cup because for the way they they support their their team, but the team has not lived up to their their responsibilities or expectations for the fan base, and and hopefully the next group can do that. Disappointing all the way around. I, I I never get happy when I hear somebody's bought out. Is, is it probably easier to 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 sell to like the depth players now? Because now it's like, hey, contract won't dictate your playing time, right? We we don't have to shoehorn this guy into a spot. And if you're trying to compete for these roles, suddenly spots up the lineup are now opening up, and how you play is going to dictate your playing time. It's a great que- it's a great point, and I, I think maybe to add to the point, it might be even you know what your play is going to decide how, you know where you are. And also, if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you don't deserve to play. And I think that's probably a louder message for the players. I think maybe some of them may get a little bit more, you know, a little, I say nervous, but um, there's more pressure because guess what? If you're not going to perform, we don't want you. We're going to get rid of you. And I think that's the message. And I hope that's the message that the players receive. Talking to Brad May, as we do on Thursdays here, longtime NHLer, former Vancouver Canuck, a lot going around the league too as we get ready for a draft, which is less than a week away. Free agency is going to be here before you know it. So teams are getting pushed to some decisions. Uh, news today uh, in Calgary, uh, Vancouver Canuck Pacific Division rival, uh, Noah Hannafin uh, is kind of indicating that he's not likely to re-sign there. So he goes into this last year of this deal. They're, they have to make decisions on uh, Elias Lindholm, who's in the last year of his deal, Mike Michael Backlund, just that team in general, right? They, they they don't make the playoffs this year. They were so good the year before, and it's just it feels like they're at a crossroads as an organization. And do you just kind of have to like pull the bandaid off and say, okay, you know what, we have to take this in a different direction? Well, I I, I guess the, the lot a lot of markets don't want to rebuild, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to call it that for whatever it is. Um, yes, I, I think they 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 had a lot of turbulence in their organization. Of course, last year with two players leaving, their two best players. Obviously, they made. I think I think Brad Treliving did a great job by actually making a move with Kachuk. But you saw how well he played with the Florida Panthers. Um, you know, I know um, 
Jonathan Huberto, is a, he's a good player, but he certainly didn't earn his contract last year with Calgary. He had a tough year, although different different environment, different coach possibly is going to help that. I think the players will play better. Um, not a knock on Daryl Sutter, but I do think that the common or the the, the today's player um, you have to you have to coach differently than possibly before the old school coach. Um, you got it's not always with the stick. Um, Daryl Daryl's got a great resume and he's got he's a confident man, but um, they have a new fresh look. And of course, uh, at the general manager manager's position, Craig Connery's done a hell of a job. He's been there. He's been working since he retired as a Calgary Flame, and um, this is his team now. So I, I would expect significant changes made in Calgary. I don't know if it improves their team, you know, immediately, but um, they'll be going in a different direction. I have to imagine. And Noah Hannafin, I expect. I don't know. This is my my prediction. He ends up with the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's that's my guess. And I and I say that because Brad Treliving is now in Toronto, and. Um, I just I can see that happening. Noah Hannafin, defenseman, Toronto needs a player like that. He he could end up on the East, on, in the Eastern Conference. Interesting. Uh, it, it's it's a just a weird team in general because like you mentioned, Huberdeau, they have Kadri. Like those guys are signed till forever. You throw in a Blake Coleman, who's one of my favorite watches, and um, they, they they signed Uyghur, Obviously, they have Markstrom. So there's pieces there, and like they're kind of in competition with the Canucks to get one of either the Pacific Division three spot or this wild card spot. But are are they on the decline? The Canucks are on the move up. Like how do you rate these two teams right now? And which one would you predict goes to the playoffs? I think okay. I, if I'm going to say it, I, I would say Calgary's on the decline, just just by what I'm seeing. Um, unless they make significant moves or the right moves, and then maybe my word means nothing. I think Vancouver is going to be a better team. Are they going to be a team pushing for the playoffs? Hopefully, um, I can't say with 100% certainty that that's going to happen. Um, they definitely have a, some good players, but they have to gel and they're going to have to show us right over the course of. 40, 60 games and put themselves in the mix to actually be the part of that group. It's it's difficult though, right? You got the you got the Edmonton Oilers, um, you got the L.A. Kings, you got the Seattle Kraken who came out of nowhere and what a year the playoff they had. Who who who's going to fight hard enough to win that last spot? Because I think those three teams I just mentioned are going to be playoff bound for sure. Uh, before they go, uh, here as I mentioned, uh, less than a week away from the uh, NHL draft. Uh, what was uh, draft week like for Brad May getting ready to be selected uh, 14th overall back in 1990? Yeah, I think it's different now. Obviously, they have the combine. I used I had to go to about 14, you know, interviews and workouts leading up to the draft. And um, my draft was in Vancouver, 1990. It was supposed to be at Pacific Call, or excuse me. Uh, Pacific Coliseum, but there was a strike, I believe, um, at that time or something went on. So they moved the venue to um, BC Place, which I, it's one of my favorite days of the year. It was June, I believe, June 16th, 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, just an amazing time and not knowing where you're going to be selected, but having all these interviews with the first round, you know, in the, being being projected in the first round, which I flew it was a dream come true, and I wish all these young hockey players, these young men, the absolute best. It is a dream, but guess what? That's when the work starts. It's a great, you know, you, 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 it's like getting a foot in the door, but then it's going to be harder, obviously, showing up to training camp, playing against men and professionals, and um, it's just the, one of the greatest memories and, and, and feelings when I think back about how I was, and boy, did I have a lot to learn, but 
um, I was so, so overjoyed. And then after the draft, um, it was amazing. I went to, um, went to Whistler for, for the week. I wrote down on my goal list, um, set my goals, 10 different goals. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to live in Vancouver and I'm going to, you know, live in the West coast. And ironically, eight years later, I was traded from Buffalo to Vancouver and I ended up being able to chalk that off the list. So for all the young players, if they're listening right now, set your goals achievable, set them high though. And, um, and then do everything possible to achieve them. That's awesome. Uh, what were the uh, like the pre-draft interviews like? Because we hear now, you know, players getting asked all these weird questions. Like, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? Like, was there any weird things in in, in your pre-draft uh, interviews? Well, I, there was a lot of lot of different questions. I, nothing nothing outlandish, but yeah. um, but I definitely I Dr. Saul Miller, who um, if you, if you if you don't know Saul, Saul was a, a psychologist for the Vancouver Canucks. He lived in the, lived on the North Shore. Um, I had to go at the draft. I had to get in a into a cab. I met with the Vancouver Canucks three or four, three times, I think with Brian Burke and, and Pat Quinn. I went and I had to do like a, a psych evaluation for like two or three hours or whatever it was. And that was a really interesting experience because I think I had to answer questions like that. What tree would you be if you were an animal, you know, but I, the, the big part um, in these interviews is they want to see the character of the player, but then they want to get to know where you came from and see how you, you know, can maybe communicate, you know, your, your past, you know? So my family is a blended family. My parents split up. So I have a stepmother and at that time a stepfather and I have a stepbrother and a stepsister. And they, they're very interested. They delved really deep into who Brad May was, what motivates you or him. And um, I, I found it really, really, I say therapeutic, but it was, it was a great experience. It was busy. It was nerve wracking, but um, sitting in a room, communicating with you know some of the legends that i i grew up watching sitting across from me um it was intimidating but it was you know you had to show who you were and and how excitable that you would be to put their jersey on and um thankfully i had one team that actually made a trade at on draft day and moved up in the draft to select me so and and that was one of the teams buffalo that i never interviewed with pretty although i played niagara falls 25 minutes from there so they probably saw me play a lot more than and they didn't need to know, but it was um, it was interesting. I thought I was being drafted elsewhere, and and I was surprised by the pick in Buffalo. Uh, right on. Well, next week uh, we'll talk, and uh, it'll be first round in the books and getting ready for uh, free agency as well, man. Appreciate it as always. Yeah, always always great. And I'm sorry I, I've been gone. I know you have too, and um, just love love talking to the Vancouver fans. So um, thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, that is uh, Brad May. Always love chatting with them. Uh, if you're not already following, at Mayday Hockey on Twitter as well. Uh, before we go to break, just a couple of minutes here before we got to go to break, uh, news today from the NHL Board of Governors meetings in New York. Elliot Friedman dropping out that uh, NHL teams will not wear specialty jerseys in warm-ups next season. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the Pride Night jerseys. Now, this is going to eliminate all warm-up jersey nights. We're talking about heritage jerseys. We're talking about Hockey Fights Cancer jerseys. Everything. This is the conclusion that the league has arrived to. Rather than try to take on issues 
head on, the league has decided, let's just eliminate everything. It's just easier not to deal with it. As if this was going to eliminate the issue. As if this was going to eliminate the topic of hockey is for everyone. Let's just clean slate everything and we're worried about it at a future time. No one's now going to talk about it now that we're just going to stop them, right? The, the, the message has been sent. If we do nothing, hockey's still for everyone. Or you're turning everyone off. Or you're still making it a talking point again. Or you refuse to show some courage to be part of these nights. To eliminate everything is not a solution. Disappointing. Disappointing. The NHL's once again saying hockey's not for everyone. All these other initiatives that they do bring in these nights that are all cast by the wayside. Handful of players can dictate all this change across the league. That's what the NHL is telling you today. We'll get into more things on the other side here on Sportsnet 650. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second half of the People Show coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Under a week away from the draft, NHL draft coverage brought to you by the Vancouver Giants. Showcasing NHL prospects, talents, including Samuel Honzik, Jaden Lipinski. Come watch NHL talent in action this season. Go to VancouverGiants.com slash tickets. Let's uh, connect with our good friend, our Mr. Fixit, our two-time cup champion and former NHLer, Ken Priestley. Ken, how are you? Great, Vic. Yourself? Uh, always doing fantastic. I was talking to Brad May earlier and uh, on a Thursday here on the People Show and uh, mentioned you know he was just before or just after a couple of Hall of Famers, a little crossover there with Pierre Turgeon. Uh, you were directly involved with a couple of these players. So yesterday, a uh, trip down memory lane as some uh, former Sabres go into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was. It's it's great to see that. I mean, I, I'm very lucky. I've been very fortunate playing in a couple of different organizations and having you know multiple Hall of Fame guys to play with. They, uh, uh, you see them at uh, some I've seen at a young age and and grew up with them. Some I kind of moved in at uh, halfway through their careers. But uh, in in Pierre's case uh, and Tommy's case, uh, I spent some time with those guys, and and both are well deserving players to. Uh, to get inducted into the hall for sure. Let's start with Pierre because you know the, the interesting case is like so many points and you know basically a point a game player from when he entered the league till age thirty two. That's a long stretch uh, for for a very high performing athlete fourteen years. Um, and, and look, the, as I was saying with Brad, it's like there wasn't all pros there. The Stanley Cup wasn't there. There are you know cases against it, but I was saying on Tuesday, it just always felt like there was a mystique when Pierre Turgeon was coming to down. You obviously got to play with them. Uh, what about it really stood out? You know what? You know, when I was, I was in Buffalo at the time, I think it was my second year, I think it was when, uh, when they drafted Pierre first overall. And um, he was, he, he, he did, he brought, 
he brought something to an organization that had had very little success in in the playoffs. They were they were very average at times. Um, they always had good teams, but they just couldn't seem to put it all together. Whether it was the chemistry or it was just uh, a lack of, of of just kind of star power and a go to guy. Um, but uh, you know when he was when he was drafted, uh, the moment he stepped into the dressing room and training camp, and, and the moment you saw him on the ice, and he had that ability to to bring excitement. Uh, he had that ability to want and to make other players better around him. Um, he was just from a very young age. He kind of took that uh, took that lead and 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 did everything he can to make the Buffalo Sabres a, a contending team. Just watching from afar, and look, we're going to see it in, in six days. Con Bedard is going to go first overall. And just seeing a young player step into this organization, you know, it, it, you're, you're still a young player stepping in and all these expectations are placed on you. The hopes of a franchise are placed on you. Just watching it from afar, like, what did you notice of how a young player dealt with it in Pierre Turgeon? I think he, I, I think he was... Um, he was a little bit more mature than than expected, right? Like I think he, I think he was just that type of player who was able to adapt from the junior style to the pro style right away. I mean, it's it's definitely a a, a challenge, right? I mean, you're you're could be a superstar in junior and, and not have any success in the league and uh, and just kind of cruise around, or you could be that first overall guy with tons immense pressure like i i remember reading in the papers and all that kind of stuff of what pierre was going to bring the buffalo sabers and what they expected out of him and um you know he he was constantly around media he was constantly around you know being the face of the franchise i mean they, they had some really good hockey players in buffalo and you know phil housley and dave anderchuk and you know, Christian Rutu and, and Tom Brasso was there at the time. So they had already had some substantial players that, that could do this, but they needed that one spark. And he seemed to be the guy that lifted Dave Anderchuk's game. Um, he lifted Alexander Mogilny's game. Um, I mean, he, he did a ton of different things for that association, that organization, sorry. And, and, and it was a, a pleasure to play with. Uh, the other one, Tom Brasso, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of, checking around yesterday just message people and it, it always stuns me when it's like hey he was he was a young player stepping in and thriving immediately in buffalo calder and vesna at 18 years old like imagine an 18 year old goalie coming in now and being thrust into all pro team vesna nomination and winning the vesna at 18 years old we would we'd, we'd freak out and i, I guess it just kind of got lost in the conscience of tom brasso as a hall of fame when you look it up and like Man, like when he first stepped in, that's a huge bar to cross that he was crossing and thriving in. Yeah, he uh, Tommy came in with uh, a, a larger than life attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Like Tommy was a very, very, very confident guy, and you need that in that position. And he there, he had no, he didn't hold anything back. I mean, he told you how good he was going to be. He he let you know how good he was, and and he let you know that. Uh, you know, he was going to make it very, very hard, uh, you know, on opposing teams to come in here and, and score goals. It was just the the sort of the aura around Tommy was that, uh, you know, bring it, right? He, he was I – I can't explain how confident he was. He was just ultra confident in his abilities. 
Um, his first year obviously showed it. I didn't come into that associate or that organization until, mm-hmm. you know, a couple years from there. But once, you know, I came in at maybe second or third year of his career and yeah, like you don't, you didn't even walk down that area, right? You just kind of stayed away and just looked at who was down there. And Buffalo had some, some really good goalies at that time. I think Brasso and Darren Poopa and, and, and they had some guys there that could really play goal, but, um, Tommy was one of those guys. He just, uh, everything around him was larger than life. And, and, and kind of, he was that larger than life goalie and, um, and, and played like it for, for most of his career. Plus he got to reconnect in uh, Pittsburgh as well. Yeah. And, and again, he was one of those things that Pittsburgh was, Pittsburgh was a good team and a very good team. And he was that, that missing piece once he got over there that kind of galvanized the group as as yes they were good from the goaltender all the way out to mario right so they had defensemen that were all stars and, and coffee and murphy and samuelson i mean and the, the forward line is stacked with hall of fame guys and, and and tommy was that stabilizing effect that just allowed the skaters the forwards the the electric offensive style that they had to go out and perform because they knew they were going to get that stop when they needed it and it allowed the forwards to play with that uh that edge that they needed to do to score goals we've talked about mcgillney before but do you want to re-up your stance on on what mcgillney meant to the the game and and what he meant to buffalo at that time you know what he uh, he was he was a great player. I, I'm 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 kind of dumbfounded why he isn't in the hall. I, I with all the numbers that he has, um, with the the excitement that he brought. I mean, he he was he was Pavel Bure, right? Like he that excitement that he had, that Pavel had in Vancouver. Alex brought that excitement in in Buffalo. I mean, there was uh, he was just raw talent and. Um, he he was he was when he first came over he was obviously didn't speak uh didn't speak english very well got along with his teammates very well i mean he he produced from pretty much from day 1 um and i think he he showed that uh that he was an elite level offensive player and everywhere he went i mean in vancouver he had some phenomenal years I mean, and whenever you can score seventy goals in the NHL, you're doing something right. And um, I'm I'm shocked that he is still not there. Uh, since we've last spoken, uh, Canucks have made uh, some decisions. Uh, the Oliver Ekman Larson buyout has happened, and and now they get to start building towards what the next team looks like. You know, how, how big of a swing do you want to see them take with uh, what they need to do on the left side of defense now? You know what I think. I think what. Rutherford and Alvin had when they first came in here, um, they they really had to figure out what it was going to be that they were going to, or what they were going to do that was going to make that sort of this organization their organization. They came in with a whole bunch of unanswered questions and and a whole bunch of probably ideas. Um, and once they've gotten their sort of handle on everything, they're starting to show that these these moves are are being made. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the draft. I'm, I'm, obviously, we, you know, you need the Canucks need defense. They need to better their team in, in pretty much every aspect of the game to get to that level. I think that they're a very good team, and I think I've said that for a couple of years now. They just, for some reason, the chemistry, or for some reason, the 
the the game plan or whatever it is that doesn't get them to be a consistent team has has sort of hampered how they're how they play and uh i think the first move is to figure out what goes on in the dressing room and i think that's why you probably saw bo horvat leave as they wanted to to figure it they maybe they found that the, the chemistry wasn't right and, and this is how they were going to do it and now the buyout of Ekman Larson. There's another, you know, point, and uh, and now it's going to be fun to see once the draft is done what they're going to do with free agency and what they're going to do to make this team a playoff contending team. Ken, uh, we appreciate it as always. We got to run here. Uh, we'll uh, talk next week, and the Canucks will have a new first round pick. Uh, we 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 hope or we think, uh, and and we'll discuss that then. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Take care, guys. Enjoy. Uh, it's Ken Priestley, our Mr. Fix-It from Dunbar Lumber, two-time cup champion and former NHLer Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, in just a couple of minutes here, we'll uh, connect uh, with John Gay, Olympic runner, Getting set to uh, compete at the Harry Jerome Classic uh, over in Langley. The 40th Harry Jerome Track Classic. Uh, early bird tickets are on sale uh, until tomorrow. And then uh, regular pricing, but early bird tickets available till tomorrow. Tickets at harryjerome.com. Let's connect with John Gay now, who joins us. John, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, how's training going? Getting ready for the 40th annual Harry Jerome going really well yeah it's, uh, we're into the last month now so things are starting to ramp up and definitely looking forward to competing in front of a home crowd again as always yeah what's it like you're, you're all over the world uh but but competing here in bc what's it like for you it's really special you know i think the more i travel and get to compete internationally where i appreciate being able to come home and be in such a familiar environment as we have here on the west coast i personally think that uh, the Lower Mainland is one of the best places in the world to compete in track and field, and the Harry Jerome really encapsulates that. We always have phenomenal fan support, um, and it's special when the fans know you personally, when you know them personally. So it just adds some some depth of uh, pride to the competition to uh, be in front of family and friends. I was saying yesterday, if uh, if people were jogging along in the sun run, they may have rubbed shoulders with you, or, or maybe you were too far ahead in the pack at the sun run. <laughs> that is, you know, it's... It's, it's a beautiful thing about our sport is that it is so accessible that uh, people are racing the same races that uh, high-performance athletes like myself are. And the Sun Run's a great example of that. And uh, the Jerome does a great job of showcasing uh, all of the talent that track and field in Canada is producing right now, not just in the distance events like mine, but right across the spectrum from throws to sprints to hurdles, pole vault, you name it. And uh, Canada's really riding a high wave of, uh, performance right now and it's cool to be part of that and I think people really can take advantage of the opportunity to watch some of our country's best athletes right here at home. This event too the Harry Jerome it, it's a great legacy event and it continues to grow uh, the opportunity to always right race here in, in in this event and and just speak about just how this uh, the, 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 this meet it just just does such a great job for the sport uh, both locally and, and what it means for you. It's one that I've got circled on my calendar every single year. And uh, even when I am away competing abroad, it's, it's got enough of a pull that it draws me back regardless of what other plans I might have. And I think that I speak for a lot of athletes when I say that. It, there's something just distinctly special about competing at this meet. Uh, there's an aura that 
it's tough to describe, but it's one of those meets that just has such a rich history that mm-hmm. athletes are excited to be part of that and given the opportunity to uh, stake their claim to a bit of that history themselves. So um, it's something that certainly draws me back every year and it does a great job of bringing some of the best talent in Canada and giving them the, the opportunity to um, but doing so right here at home. Uh, so I always look forward to it. And I know many other athletes feel the same way because it has that, that special tradition that is tough to find in, in many competitions. What's this stretch of time like for you? Like here we are a year away from Paris, uh, the Olympics. Uh, like what does preparation start to look like for you? This is really kind of that crucial window for me and for many athletes. Uh, as you mentioned, the Paris Olympics are now just over 13 months away. And uh, that's both exciting, but also means that the pressure gets notched up. Uh, performances now start to really matter for qualification purposes for those Olympics. And obviously that's a big goal of athletes in many sports and track and field is no different. Um, it's kind of what you build a four-year cycle around is that Olympic year. And so now that we enter uh, the final year leading up to that, there's an added and amplified sense of uh, competitiveness to these races, uh, a sense of kind of now or never do or die mentality. And I think that's really visible when you watch athletes competing at a meet like the Harry Jerome, where they've been given a great opportunity to um, notch a qualifying mark or to improve their world ranking. And that's not lost on the athletes. They know that it's now or never. And, that's typically when we see some of the very best performances come out. And uh, it's something you can't really script. It just, it happens organically. And the drone uh, sets the stage to then let the athletes perform and hopefully rise to the occasion um, and start notching those marks for Paris 2024. Because we spend so much time, you know, dealing with hockey players and, and whatnot, just athletes who deal in seasons. And you know, we talk about and just always, hey, focusing on the next game. You just mentioned there, four-year cycles, right? It, it, the preparation is so different. Does it change season to season, year to year? Or is, is the, the, the third year here just like, hey, we're focused on what can to springboard us into the Olympics? Yeah, you know, as much as, Um, I would like to say that every year has a similar rhythm and that you want to be at your best every single year. Um, The reality of a sport that's so Olympic dominant like track and field is that there is an extra sense of expectation placed on athletes when they're in the general public's eye and being showcased during that Olympic year. And so everything leading up to that is just this mounting of pressure and expectation, um, but also excitement and anticipation. It's when Uh, we have the opportunity to capture the imagination of the casual track and field fan more so than in a non-Olympic year. And I really relish that opportunity. I think many athletes do. It's it's our chance to step into the spotlight and show what we've been working at for so many years. And even though it's a four-year cycle for many, it's obviously many, many more years than that, just to make it to a point where the Olympics becomes a feasible goal. And so being able to find myself in a position now about a year out from the Olympics where uh, qualifying for my second Olympic team is a very real uh, possibility and something that I'm working towards. It's exciting to have, uh, like I said, casual track and field fans, as well as our diehard fans and community. Momentum to this final push in the last 12 months leading up to Paris. Hey, John, uh, we really appreciate the time. I uh, hope the training goes well. And uh, just in a couple of weeks, uh, you'll be out in Langley for the, the 40th annual Harry Jerome yeah, Track Classic. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Dick. Absolutely. Uh, again, that's John Gay, Olympian runner.
uh, again, in a couple of weeks uh, over at the Harry Jerome Classic. Early bird tickets on sale wrapping up tomorrow. Tickets at harryjerome.com. Dom, what's going on? Now, now that we have a few minutes to end the show here. I, I, I was setting it up. Trust me, don't worry about it. Uh, we need to talk about this. Yeah, we need to talk about this. Uh, so yeah. while we were setting up the people show, uh, Frank Cervelli tweeting out um, that uh, word has come down that Tyler Toffoli not uh, interested in signing in, in Calgary. And cer- certainly, when that something like that happens, you would go, what do you think of when you see Tyler Toffoli's name? Uh, that's what happened in the 650 office. And someone launched into it. reminds me of Tofifi. That was me. The coffee. Reminds me or of the toffee caramel coffee. toffee candy. What's the name of that again? Now, now I said Tofifi. Yeah. That's how I say it. Josh said... Tofifi. We we all had different pronunciations. Tofifi. Tof. Sorry. Like what was Josh's again? Tofifi. Tofifi. Yeah. So you know that like the the candy you get at every Christmas you see it out there. Yeah. Uh, this launched a forty five minute debate in our six. That's not offices. hyperbole. No, like I, I'm not kidding. And people streamed in one by one, and as they came in, everyone had different pronunciations of Tofifi. Okay, so what was yours? Tofifi. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. The best one was Sat came in. He's like, oh, it's toffee. You don't pronounce the third F. Like, What does that even mean? <laughs> it's like us going like, hey, Satty, you don't you don't pronounce the last A and the R. <laughs> so we don't know. Well, you don't know. I don't know. Well, Reach and I looked it up. Reach was a coward and wanted to bring it up. Yeah. And I ran out of the room because I wanted to live in ignorant bliss. So, go home tonight and talk about with your loved ones. Your significant other. You, you know that candy that you only see for about four weeks of a year? It's like half toffee, half coffee, nougat, it's a, caramel. It's a, it's a bowl shape. Yeah. By the way, incredibly. You... Tofifi? Toffifi? Tofife? Tofifi? There's, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. Yeah. And if you're listening to your radio right now, I'm thinking, oh, when's this Tofifi bit going to end? Let me tell you, Canuck Central is going to have plenty of it. <laughs> plenty of it. Because they were fired up about it, too. All of us. Like, more so than any transaction the Vancouver Canucks have done, we were that fired up about. Yeah. You would think NBA Draft Day, we're talking about, oh, where's Scoot Henderson going to go? No. Tofifi. 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 I don't know, but uh, dresses on certain words and accents. Dan was like, no, it's toffee. It, it was chaos. Yeah. Uh, I st- still don't know. Thank you for humoring us with that comment. But how do you pronounce the candy? Toffee. 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 Whatever it is. You're going to hear more versions of it because uh, Josh Elliott Wolf is uh, strolling into the booth right now. Uh, with his uh, Tofife take. It's all in the way. Canucks Central. Plus, I got a lot more on the way, too. Uh, Col- uh, Barlow is coming up, correct? Yes. Uh, Barlow's on the way at 4.30. Other good content. I'm not even going to open the inbox right now. It's already starting to stream in. Setting you guys up for uh, Central coming up in minutes here. Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.